I love how the Bible for me now is not just a, again, this random collection of history and maybe some poetry, but it, but it really is a love letter from the God of the universe written to reveal his nature, his character, his work, and how much he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. In one of the cities of refuge, the name Hebron, it means fellowship or friendship. And from that, we can draw and derive that God doesn't just love us, which is wonderful, but he also likes you. <laughs> he wants to spend eternity with you. Sometimes we get this idea, oh, God just tolerates us. Well, yes, if we've sinned, he tolerates and he's long-suffering, but yet he sent Jesus so that he could deal with the sin so that he could spend eternity with us. And so he loves us, which is great, but he also likes you. And that's okay. He likes you and he's for your growth. He's for you being transformed into the image of Christ, which is ultimately why you're here today. You know, there's no greater joy for me than to see a family singing a song as they did and almost coming to tears because you know what they've been through and you know the battles they face and you know that without the gospel, they have no hope. The gospel is our only hope, right, Scott? And um, I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the fact that many people that you see on this stage, um, all these folks that we're leading and many people who you'll see today and you'll shake their hands, they all have a story. And ultimately all of our story is, sums up with this, we were hopeless and we were helpless and we were dead. And Christ rescued us. He redeemed us. He's restoring us. He's renewing us. And praise God, one day that body will also get redeemed. Amen. We're waiting for that. We're groaning a little bit. But uh, looking forward to that wonderful promise. Well, if you have your Bibles there at Philippians chapter number 2, I'll stop uh, rambling, as preachers often do, and we'll get into the Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is what we're about to read. The title of the message today is Game Plan. We've been talking a lot about this, this basic issue, that the Bible says we're new creatures. The Bible says that uh, there's a part of us that's brand new, but yet we still deal with a sin-fallen, sin-cursed world. We deal with broken bodies, and, and there's this battle between the, the spirit and the flesh. Uh, Galatians 5 tells us that. It even says at the end of verse 17, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And that's sobering, but it's also hopeful because that verse is basically saying there's a part of us that doesn't want to do sin anymore. And we talked about how that's our new nature. There's a part of you now that hates sin. And when you live in sin and when you allow sin to be master over you, you are miserable. As Paul said in Romans 7, he said he was wretched. He said he was miserable because there was a part of him that he knew was brand new. And he was just, um, he was struggling with this issue of the law and its role in the believer's life. And, and so anyway, if you want to go back and catch some of those sermons, I think they'll be helpful to you as we try to make sense of both what the Bible says about us being regenerated in a moment, in an instant, we're new creatures, but yet we still are dealing with the reality of day-to-day -day life and how we live out what God says is brand new. And so there's a lot of uh, things for us to still grow in understanding, and I do not stand up here today pretending to know exactly everything there is to know about the Bible. I, I, I'm so thankful that I'm a student just like you, <laughs> and we're all learning together. I've been doing, I've been pastoring now for about 10 years, hard to believe. We were watching some of Caitlin's baby videos. Caitlin's going to be 15 on Wednesday of this week. And Rebecca and I were looking, and we're like, have we really been here 10 years? I mean, the time just goes by so fast. And here's what I've learned in 10 years. I don't know much. <laughs> but I do know God, and I do know that he loves me. And the more I learn some days, I feel like the less I know, but the more at peace I am because I continue to learn more about God and his nature and his character. And so I hope that today is a journey in that, that you would grow in your understanding of who God is, grow in your appreciation for what he's done for you and what he is doing. And that's kind of the focus of our message today. What is God doing in our lives right now? So look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and we'll read these two simple verses and then look at some other verses in God's word as we build the message today. It says in Philippians 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I hear this verse brought up a lot when I'm talking about the grace of God and I'm overwhelmed by the grace of God and I'm sharing about the finished work of Christ. And sometimes this verse will get placed out there to say, well, yeah, but pastor, you know, or but Brian, you know, 
that we got to work it out and we got to live under this umbrella of fear and uncertainty. What's funny is when this verse gets quoted in that context, they never quote the next verse, which is funny to me. Because what's the next verse say? You see, it's always dangerous to take one verse out. It's great to look at the verses around us. And here's what's fascinating about this passage is it's in the kenosis passage. Scholars call this the kenosis passage. And what that means is, is it's describing the fact that Jesus lowered himself, humbled himself. That's what the word kenosis means. It means a removal of some qualities of, of, of the benefits of deity. Jesus lowered himself. And so Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 talk about that. And talk about the gospel, basically, and what Jesus does for us. And then, yes, this verse is here, and it says that there is a responsibility on our part to work out. But don't ever quote, if there's one thing I hope you'll never do again going out of the service today, don't ever just quote Philippians 2.12. Deal? Always quote verse 13 with it, because that's so helpful. Verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Isn't that important not to leave that out? Because if we leave out verse 13, you know what we get? We get works-based religion that says it's never finished. It's never enough. You've got to always make sure you're doing more, more. And, of course, that's the lie of religion, more. More to earn God's love and his favor. Or how about we do more because we have God's favor? That's great. And so it's not that the Christian life doesn't have work. We're going to look at a lot of verses that say we are his workmanship, ordained to good works. We're going to look at uh, verses that talk about how God wants us to be flourishing and fruitful Christians today. But don't ever quote verse 12 without verse 13 because what we're doing in the Christian life is we are working out what God is working in. And we're going to see how this plays out in some language that a lot of us use. I've used it before. And we all tend to fall into traps in our thinking and in how we even say things that reinforce wrong thoughts. And so today's going to be a challenge to uh, hear the word and allow the word to confront perhaps wrong thoughts that reinforce wrong beliefs that then reinforce wrong behaviors. And so the ultimate goal for God's, uh, God's will for our life is our growth as believers in him. If you don't know Christ, his ultimate goal for your life is that you would come to know him that you would trust in him as your savior. And then, as the gospel has saved you, God then wants the gospel to shape you. And so that's the goal of today's message. And so before we look at the thoughts here uh, in this message called Game Plan, uh, how many of you played a sport growing up in grade school or high school? Raise your hand if you grew up playing a sport. Now, all of us know what it's like when we're first learning that sport. I played high school basketball, and... Um, and that was fun. It was fun to sit the bench for most of my high school career. I was, I was the sixth man. I was needed. I was needed to cheer on the starters. But anyway, it was great to watch basketball and to learn the game of basketball. But how many of you have ever, uh, maybe husbands could identify with this. Husbands, how many of you, your, your loving spouse has tried to sit down and share in one of your enjoyments, such as maybe the game of college football, and they sit down and they don't have a clue how the game is played? Raise your hand if you've got a spouse that doesn't have a clue how the game of football is played. All right, you, you know, and they get it confused with, oh, he shot a basket. No, 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 that's a touchdown. And you've got to explain the words and the language. And, uh, and the truth is, is in, unless you know how the game works, you can build wrong expectations or wrong assumptions, and you can become very quickly frustrated. For instance, um, in football, uh, you don't score a touchdown on every time you touch the ball the first time. Now, some Alabama fans think that they're entitled to that. And I'm looking out there. Some of y'all think, well, when we get the ball on the kickoff, we should score a touchdown. Hey, Alabama fans, that's not how it works, all right? And y'all know that, really. I know sometimes it doesn't seem like it because it seems like every time y'all touch the ball on the first time, you score. But the point is, is that in football, there's multiple downs. Sometimes you go forward 10 yards and you go back 15. And so if you're not careful, if you don't understand the game of football, you become very frustrated very quickly because you expect every time you touch the ball, to score a touchdown. When we look at the Christian life, what is God's game plan for living out the victorious Christian life? Isn't it true that sometimes if we don't understand how the Christian life gets lived out, that sometimes we build false expectations that only add to frustration, disappointment, and almost a sense of hopelessness in our Christianity because we don't understand the nature of the battle, the nature of this 
game, if you want to call it, that we're in. And so what happens is, is we place expectations on our life and we allow those things to, whether, whether unrealistic or just misplaced, they berate us, we bully ourselves over things that even God doesn't bully us or, or, uh, or expect of us. We, we impose expectations upon ourselves that God doesn't because Jesus has already fulfilled all those expectations in his perfect life and his vicarious death and his victorious resurrection. And so we live for years thinking that we're failures, but in God's game plan, we're simply his children and we're learning and we're growing and we're understanding all that we now are in and through him. So today I want us to better understand what, what this game of life, if we want to use that illustration or that parallel with the football, of, of what does it mean to live out this life and, and what is God's plan for living out the victory, catch this, that we already have in Christ. Sometimes it gets presented that we're fighting for victory, but if you really study the New Testament, God says we are already more than conquerors. There's something that has happened that is so supernatural, so ground-shaking, so history-defining, the resurrection is what it's referring to, that we are now victorious in Christ. But I know what we're all thinking. You mean the Bible says I'm already victorious? Then why am I in here this morning feeling like a failure and experiencing failure this week? How do I begin to see the growth that I so deeply long to see in my spirit. So those are the things, hopefully, that we'll begin to answer. We won't answer it all, but I hope that this will help us. I, I want this to help us today. So first of all, we see this thought, and that is this, grace plan. So write that down there in your worship guide, grace plan. Before we talk about the actual components of, of God's game plan for living out the victorious Christian life that we already have in Christ, I want us to understand that this plan, this whole thing begins with, continues in, and finishes in grace. It's all because of God's grace. It begins with grace. It continues in grace. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that shapes us. And this was a paradigm shift for me probably six or seven years ago now. I used to view the gospel as this wonderful story. It's great. And yeah, great. It saved me. But when I got saved, whether it was intentional or not, I ended up putting the gospel kind of on the shelf in my living room, so to speak. And thought, you know, that's great. It's good to look back to the gospel, you know, the good news. But the moment, I'll be honest, the moment I walked into a service and heard that the preacher was going to be preaching on the gospel, I'm like, I've heard this before. Tell me something different. Tell me something I need to do. You know, give me 10 things that I need to go work on this week. Do better, try harder, and then I'll come back next week and pretend like I was successful, and you can give me 10 more things to do. And so whenever I heard about the gospel, I'm like, oh, you know, that's on the shelf. I, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of grown up since then. And I even took some scriptures in the Old Testament that I misunderstood about milk and about children and, and thinking, you know, okay, that's great for kids. It's the ABCs of Christianity, the gospel. Okay, that saved me but now it's all about my blood, sweat, and tears. And so I would quote Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation. And it wasn't until someone lovingly said, uh, don't forget verse 13. I'm like, oh. Oh! How many of you have ever had one of those, what I call BFOO, blinding flash of the obvious moments? Anybody ever had a blinding flash of the obvious moment where something that was so simple you all of a sudden got? I love that with my kids. I love watching the light bulbs come on where it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> y'all are looking at, some of y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. Some of y'all look at me like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep. It's like this BFOTO, blinding flash of the obvious moment where all of a sudden you get it. And that's what God continues to show us, is that the gospel is not just something that saves us, but it's something that shapes us. Grace isn't just salvation. It's also sanctification. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, Titus 2.12. And so this game plan all starts with God's grace. Listen, we will not shy or run away from the grace of God. You know why? Because it's our only antidote for sin. It's our only hope for freedom. 
Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible we talked about a few weeks ago in our small groups time in connection with one of our services here. We talked about John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. How many of you are familiar with that story? If you're not, it's a beautiful story you need to read, John 8, verses 1 through 11. A woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was brought by the religious rulers of, of Jesus' day to him. They were trying to trap and trick Jesus into a uh, dilemma, a no-win situation, a catch-22, where if he said one thing, it would contradict this side over here, and if he said this, it would contradict that. And so... Jesus, of course, masterfully, because he's the God of the universe and he actually wrote the law, he was able to uphold the standard of the law, but also prove to all those religious people there that they weren't as holy as they thought they were. And all of them were in desperate need of grace. You know, the only person that got grace that day and really understood it was who? The woman at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus pronounced these gracious words to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You, it's so important, the order of those two phrases. He didn't say, go try really hard to work out not sinning anymore, and then I might not condemn you. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, neither do I condemn thee. Now, go and sin no more. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear that the power for her to say no to sin, to go and live out a new life, was found in her really believing, really resting in the fact that she was no longer condemned? That is the good news, and that is grace. Grace is, I've told you before, it's like we think we've got grace in this little thimble of water, and then we look in the thimble and we find it's the ocean. It continues to expand. It continues to overwhelm. And folks, this is a subject that we can never exhaust. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. You just heard that song, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And I want you to notice this. He says, the life, the life which I now live in the flesh live in the flesh. And in fact, I'm, I just underlined that there. Y'all say that out, out loud with me, those four words. Ready? One, two, three. Live in the flesh. There we go. Live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying here in this idea of this being all of grace? It starts with grace. It continues with grace. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that shapes us in our life. What's he saying here when he says live in the flesh? What he's saying is this. God desires for our relationship with him to show up on the outside in our behavior. He desires that. He intends to change us both inside and out. He calls us to live differently than before our salvation, but it's still all his work in us. We are his workmanship. And so it's not our work for him. It's his work in and through us as we work it out. So that's the order. you got to keep the order there because it's so important. So we'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. So it's a matter of obedient surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. We are obediently surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit and saying, God, I can't force this growth. All I can do is allow this growth to happen as I receive, as I then obey through obedient surrender of faith as your Spirit works in my life. And so it's a matter of allowing the work of God, not attempting to force it with clenched fists and gritted teeth. A lot of times we get this idea that we're going to do it, you know? That's not it. It's God working in and through us. And I've got an illustration at the end of the sermon that I think really illustrates that perfectly, I think. And so stay tuned. But the Christian life is not meant to be carried out under white knuckles, but rather it's meant to be lived on bended knees. It's not meant to be white knuckled like Martha. It's meant to be on bended knee like Mary, saying, God... I just enjoy spending time with you, and God, I can get up now from this position of rest, and I can work. And so, grace. So what does this look like? So, so, so we're talking about grace and how it transforms our life, and, and, and this grace really is for our victory. It's for our victory. And so secondly, there in your blanks, you can write this thought or this phrase, victory plan. This plan that God has for our growth, for living out the victorious Christian life that we already have as believers— involves our victory. It involves living from a position of victory. It's easy to start trying to live, catch this, it's easy to start trying to live for Jesus rather than living in Jesus. 
there is one thing that I think all of us probably walked in here today with thinking is, okay, i got to live for God. And I'm not saying that we don't want to live for Him, but I hope that today you'll see the paradigm shift. That it's not just about living for Him. There's so much more. And really, if that's our main focus, then that is one of performance-driven Christianity. But the other, living in Christ, through Christ, and from Christ, is spirit-led, love-motivated Christianity. God is teaching us two things here in our key text in Philippians 2 this morning. Look back at verse 13 for a moment. You've got to see this. Verse 13, notice what he says. He says, For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What does that mean? Jesus' work within our lives produces two things. The will and the ability to follow him in obedience the will. God is for my growth. He's for my living out a holy life. That's encouraging to me. Isn't that to you? He's like a proud daddy who loves to see his kid learning how to walk. And you know what God says to the witnesses in heaven when he sees you living out the spirit-filled life on a Monday morning on your way to work in crazy traffic? and you're responding the right way. Do you know what he says? He says, that's my boy! That's my child. He's living out. My son, Jesus, is transforming him. Do you see Jesus living in and through him? Victory. And so the will is my inner desire. Paul alluded to this last week when we studied Romans 7. He said he delights in the law of God after the inward, inward man. So there's this new nature that loves, that, that, that wills to follow God. And then to do is the ability or the act to behave the way God wants us to. And why does God want us to behave a different way than we used to? Because the way that we used to behave was killing us. It was killing us physically. It had killed us spiritually. It, was, it kills us relationally. Listen, when you are selfish, you're always harming a relationship. We're always harming relationships in our life when we are living for self. And so God wants us to act a different way. You know why? Because he knows that the way we were acting was killing everything around us. And so any good that takes place within us or any good that flows from us will be a direct result of God's grace by his spirit flowing in and through us. And it's called the fruit of the spirit. Will we do good works after our salvation? Of course we will. Yes. Look at these verses that talk about how we do good works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so God is for our victory and he's for our flourishing. He wants us to be a plant planted in solid, nutritious soil by the river of life. And he wants us to receive his truth and for that truth to spring up new life in us. And so, yeah, we are his workmanship. Look at this verse, that the man of God, why is the word of God given to us? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's good news. God wants to see good works in your life. He says this, he says, and let us consider one of the purposes for being a church, one of the purposes of why you gather as the body every week and why it's not just good enough to catch it online or catch it on TV, although I'm thankful for all those tools. One of the reasons we need this is to provoke one another to love and to good works. I don't know about you, but I needed to see some of y'all's faces this morning. Singing, believing that it was finished. I need to have you preach the gospel to me every week just as much as I'm preaching the gospel to you every week in some facet of, of a way that's applying it to our life. And so that word provoke means to stoke up the fire of love and good works. And isn't that neat that it's love and to good works, that it's good works motivated by love, love for God and a love for others. The most liberating and freeing moments you will ever have in your life are when you do good works that are totally 100% motivated by just a love for God and a love for that person. It is like a nuclear life-giving blast in your soul when you live that kind of way. 
And you know that's true because there's something in you right now that's saying, yes, that's awesome. It is. It's the greatest thing in all the world. And so God says that he has saved us to good works. But I'm thankful that these works, that he actually goes beyond this. And he doesn't just stop with work because he doesn't want us to get it confused. He actually talks about how that we are uh, producing fruit. And I forgot to put this verse in there, but Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, write that down and read it later. Because he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And there in that passage, that's important for people to get the distinction. And so God talks about works in the New Testament, but he goes beyond just that word work because if he just used that word, I think we would miss it. And so he calls the Spirit-filled life the works that we do. He ultimately defines them as fruit, which is so powerful. Why? Because fruit simply is produced as the result of the tree being planted in the right soil and receiving the right amount of nutrition. And you can't help but... And so fruit is produced through this process. And so God uses that word fruit as well to describe the spirit-filled life. And so, and the reason he uses fruit is because he wants us to understand that we do not produce this fruit in self-dependence, but in savior dependence. It's not us in our own strength groaning to produce fruit. I've told you all that before. You never walk by an apple tree and hear the tree groaning to produce apples. It just does because it's in the right soil. It's the nature of the tree. Catch that. Boy, that's important. Sometimes we don't understand our new nature and that our new nature loves good works, loves fruits of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meek, temperance. Mm. And that fruit is tasty, by the way, <laughs> and it gives life and it refreshes those around you. And so God here is for our victory. Going forward in our efforts in the Christian life will either lead us to be self-driven, in which case our fruit will be phony, it won't be real, or it will be Jesus-driven, spirit-led by yielding to him, in which case Jesus produces authentic, lasting fruit that resounds to the glory of God. Of God. And so a lot of times, as I mentioned, we try to get this or we think we get this by trying to live for Jesus, living for Jesus. And what do I mean by that? We are incredibly skilled at masking self-glory and self-works in spiritual terms. In our words, yes, God might be getting the glory, but in our heart and intent, many times we're more like, it's more like we're saying, God, God must be really impressed at how I'm doing for him. He's lucky to have me doing all these things for him. He surely gets a lot of glory because of all these things I do for him. And there's the subtle difference that we have to always be on guard with. Because if we're not careful, we become like the elder brother who's doing all the, you know, the story of the prodigal son. There's two sons. One goes off. He's a failure. He knows it. He comes back. And to his surprise, and certainly to the elder brother's surprise, the father throws a party. There's grace. And so the elder brother comes in, and what does he start doing? He starts rehearsing his resume of all the things he's done for the Father. All the things he's done for God. That's the parallel. And so you can tell if you're just living for Jesus, and, and it's all focused on your self-efforts to live for him, if when you see grace displayed in other people's lives, the first thing you say is, well, what about me? That's not fair. I didn't get a party. They got recognized more than me. That shows us that while we say we're doing all these things for God and we want him to get the glory, you can tell by your reactions and responses what you're really living for or who you're really living in, through, and from. So living for Jesus, but then I want to talk to you about this. The real key here is understanding what it means to live in, through, and from Jesus. The primary focus in our Christian life should be on the fact that it's God working in us. Just like this passage that we're meditating on today. Two verses. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling... For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now notice the words there. For it is God which worketh what? In you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's not just about living for God. 
actually at the source, at the foundation of it all, is living in, through, and from Jesus. In, through, and from Jesus. It's God that is working in you. When we have finally come to the end of ourselves and our efforts to live for Jesus, how many of you would say, I've, I've, I've tried to live for Jesus. I, the preachers tell me I need to live for Jesus. I, I know I need to live for Jesus. There's a part of me that wants to live for Jesus, but I'm missing something. Perhaps what we're missing is a paradigm shift in our thinking that it's not so much living for Jesus, it's living in, through, and from him. So what does that mean? Well, hopefully we'll unpack this a little bit, but this is the goal of the Christian life is to understand that, to reckon that, to yield to that process. So when we finally come to the end of ourselves and our efforts to live for Jesus, the response is not to quit in despair. For instance, there might be some folks in here who have tried to live for God for decades, and you are depressed, you are frustrated, you are, you are, you have failed, and you're hopeless. When you reach that moment, actually that's a very good place to be if you then cast all of your hope upon Christ. You cast yourself in your absolute weakness into the person of Jesus Christ and his mighty grace. You collapse, finally, in his sufficiency and strength. And all you can do at that point is say, God, I present my body as a living sacrifice. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? We want to crawl off the altar and start living for God again. When God says... It's really about living in, through, and from me. I'm the vine, ye are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So God says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. And so Here's what happens. We grow up, we, 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 we live our life in this world, and we're constantly being pressed to live for something, for this profession, for this relationship, for, 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 for. And what happens is, is when we get saved, there's this subtle switch where we keep on trying to live for. But we forget that the main focus of the Christian life is in, through, and from, not just for. And I think that's why God uses the difference here in two words. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but what? be transformed. You see, there's a difference between just outward conformity, like Plato. I mean, literally, that word means to press into an outward mold. Transformation is like a caterpillar going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. So there's this transformation. And how do we do that? We do that by the renewing of our mind. And that's the battleground, is the mind, knowing this to be true. And so, folks, this is a massive shift in our focus and in our perspective. It's a paradigm shift. What is a paradigm shift? It's those kinds of truths where you have that blinding flash of the obvious moment where then everything begins to emanate and change from that moment. Everything we do in the Christian life is either because of our efforts to grace Jesus or him gracing us. And so this was why it constantly goes back to Christ. And, 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 and there's no boasting. I mean, Paul said this over and over. He said, you know what? The gospel removes all boasting. It removes all need for me to be in competition with anyone. You know, for some of us, we struggle so much with, comp with a competitive spirit. We struggle so much with, with worrying about other people getting the credit or the attention or the glory. And what we're really saying in that is, is we don't understand what we've received in the grace of God in a relationship with him. And so the gospel removes boasting living in, through, and from Christ removes this need to, to, to try to build my resume of validation, worth, acceptance, and approval. And so what happens is, is if we're not careful, as we mentioned several weeks ago, we reduce grace. And what we do is we treat salvation just like a little power boost, a little steroid that helps us get the job done. Oh yeah, we're thankful for God, we're thankful for salvation, and, and yeah, we needed that little power boost to be a better version of ourselves. And that's sometimes how the gospel gets presented. 
But that's not what salvation is. It's not simply a modest power boost to help get you across the finish line in your own strength. No, what salvation is, is a total, complete rescue from absolute destitution and utter hopelessness. And the only way I have to illustrate this is I was a lifeguard. How many of you were a lifeguard at any time in your life? We got any lifeguards in the, in the audience? I, I think I've shared a little bit of this illustration with you before. But you know one of the most dangerous things as a lifeguard is to jump in when that swimmer is in phase two of drowning. There's three stages, and there's actually more now. They've, they always complicate things, you know. So there's actually more stages of drowning now. I didn't know this. I was Googling this this week. And I'm like, really? But anyway, I was trained that there was three stages of drowning. There was distressed swimmer, and that's someone who is out there, and they're starting to struggle, and they know it, and they can still cry out for help. So that's actually a distressed swimmer. That's not an active drowning victim. So there's stage one, distressed swimmer. Stage two, active drowning victim. The difference between a distressed swimmer and an active drowning victim is the active drowning victim ain't saying anything any longer. But their eyes are wide open, and they are trying to keep their head above water, and they have gone into the fight for their life mode. They're trying to find any kind of firm foundation that they can, can um, find to rescue them. The most dangerous thing for a lifeguard to do if he's not been trained right, and, and by the way, this, this might help very practically. If you go down to the beach or go to the pool this week and you want to r- r- jump in and rescue somebody, be very careful how you do it because many times both the person who was drowning and the person that jumps in to try to rescue the person, you've heard this, they both end up drowning. You know why? Because the lifeguard or the person that jumps in to rescue an active drowning victim, the problem is that active drowning victim is still trying to rescue themselves. And they're going to try to use you. And they're going to start pushing you down under with them. They don't mean to do it because they're just fighting for their... They are in a survival instinct. So I've seen this and I've heard this. Literally, sometimes you know what a lifeguard will do? They'll get close enough to that active drowning victim to knock them out. (laughs) So then they can drag them to safety. Why? Because it's not until they give up trying to save themselves that someone else can rescue them. And folks, if there's anything that I can paint a picture for you on this between living for Jesus and living in, through, and from Jesus, it's to realize that he is the savior of your soul He is the giver of your strength. He is the rock of firm footing. And he is the one that has to do the rescuing. But we love to try to add to what he's doing. But it's him working in and through you, both to willing to do of his good pleasure, as we let him. And that's us working it out. That's us living it out. And so, oh, I've ran out of time. But let me give to you quickly the game plan then. All right, so what's the game plan? If we had to boil it down to just three simple things, this is great truth here as we studied this here this week in both Philippians 2 and in chapter 10 of the book we've been going through this summer. What is God's game plan for real Christianity? Well, as we've been sharing, it goes against everything that we would naturally think. We default into the works of our own righteousness and our own self-effort rather than allowing the fruit of the Spirit and Savior dependence to be evident in our life. Our flesh is always fighting for the glory. We want to compare ourselves with others and measure ourselves as successful. God's game plan has nothing to do, though, with our self-righteousness, but everything to do with his grace and his goodness working in and through us. His game plan, simply put, is not a strategy of working harder, but depending deeper. Let me say that again. God's game plan, his strategy is not you working harder, but depending deeper. And it starts all with this change of mind of understanding living in, through, and from Christ. So he wants us to depend upon him deeper as we obey in a response to his transforming grace. God's love transforms our loves. And so here's the three things that I want you to get as we walk away from the message today. Number one, God wants us in this plan of living out the victorious Christian life that we already have in Christ. Number one, he wants us to grow in our love for Jesus. Love Jesus. The greatest thing we can do as a Christian is to simply love Christ. In what ways was our love evident for Christ this last week in our lives? I'm amazed at how many in the religious world would, 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 would hear this and say, oh, that's, that's cheap, that's, that's fluffy, talking about the love of God is shallow. You see, the religious world would seek to cheapen or diminish preaching and focus and would diminish preaching that focuses on the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is sad. 
And yes, there's some abuse and mischaracterization of the love of God today, which is sad in, in many churches. But love for Christ is the greatest motivator, folks, for every other moral behavior and good work in your life. The expulsive power of a greater love leads to a fading away of all other loves. This is the goal of marriage, isn't it? To grow in your love for your spouse. And all the other loves that you thought were awesome in your dating years fade away. They don't hold a candle to the great love that you now have with your spouse. And so that kind of love transforms your behaviors around your spouse, right? I mean, and so in our relationship with God, it really does start with a love for Christ, loving Jesus. Anything less than love is a cheap and artificial substitute for real Christianity. God says he wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first command, to love him. He goes on to say this. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. What's Jesus saying? He says, if you really love me, you'll keep my commands. I love that verse. It's so powerful. If we love him, we'll do what he says. And what's neat about John 14 and 15, if you study it, is he gave two commands there in that passage as he was teaching his disciples. He said, there's two commands I want you to follow. Believe me and then love me and the brethren. And John affirms that in 1 John 3, 21 and 22. Look that up sometime. Two simple commands in the new covenant in a relationship with Jesus. Because love is the fulfilling of all the moral law of the Old Testament. And then John 21, verse 15. You know, when Peter confronted, or when Jesus confronted Peter on the seashore, he didn't ask Peter, um, Peter, why did you deny me? He didn't berate Peter. He didn't beat Peter up. He simply asked Peter a question. Peter, do you love me? You see, Peter's breakdown wasn't just a breakdown of a behavior. Peter's breakdown was a breakdown of love. Jesus didn't ask Peter, Peter, why'd you do those things? Why'd you deny and forsake me? Why'd you go back to fishing? He simply asked three times, Peter, do you love me? You know, God could motivate us in any way he chooses. He could use pain. He could use circumstances that he manipulates. He could obligate us with debts and force us with his authority. And those motivators might work for a little while. For a little while. But they don't work long term. Only grace bypasses all of these lesser motivations and calls us to the highest motivation known in any relationship, and that's love. And we know this deep down to be true. Love is what truly motivates us to change. So any breakdown in our walk with Jesus ultimately is a breakdown of love. Every time we sin, we are choosing to love something or someone more than Jesus. This is why he said to the church there at Ephesus, you've left your first love. Perhaps for some of us today, it really is that simple. We've left our first love. We've forgotten what that first love is like. We've forgotten what God's love is all about. We've, we've moved on, and, and sometimes in our own efforts and, and, and confusion, we think, well, I want to show God how much I love him, so I want to live for him. And we forget that it's about living in, through, and from him. I love how the writer in this book says it. He says, real Christianity is an experience in lavish grace that calls forth lavish love. The bigger and more extravagant I understand God's grace to be, the more accurately I see God's unconditional love, the more it deeply motivates me to love him. So loving Jesus. Number two, walking with Jesus. The focus here is on this day-by-day -day experience where relationships that thrive are those that have time and attention given to them. Um, we know this in marriage. If we do not give time and attention to our marriage relationship, it will grow weak and cold by neglect and distance. And so for us as spouses, this is why it's so important for us to make sure that our spouse is getting T-I-M-E, time, and that we purposefully try to make sure that we connect with one another, to walk through life with one another. Jesus calls us to walk with him, to follow him, to yield his lordship, to abide with him. And this relationship with him transforms us. As a believer in Jesus, our love for him should compel us to spend more time with him. 
So when we love Jesus, that causes us to long to spend time with Christ. And so that's why church attendance and being with God's people becomes a priority. That's why spending time listening to a spiritual podcast on God's Word becomes a priority. Reading God's Word becomes a priority. Getting more connected into the life of faith becomes a priority because we're like, oh, He loves me. And He, not, and he doesn't just love me. He likes me. No. I don't even like myself some days. Well, yeah, but God likes you and he's transforming you. And don't worry, when you get to heaven, you'll be likable. You know, your body will be new. <laughs> he's working on us. And so God wants us to walk with him. Walk with him. I love this verse, Revelation 3.20. He said to another church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will have supper with him. I, I love that. Jesus must have been a Baptist. Amen. He, he liked to eat. <laughs> In fact, he ate with Peter on the seashore, right? In John 21, when he asked him, Peter, do you love me? Jesus wants to have a meal with you, which means he wants to live your, ev your everyday life with him. He wants to dine with us. Jesus wants to enjoy our company. When Jesus saved us, Jesus didn't hire us as an employee. He didn't contract us out. He didn't redeem us for forced labor in a sweatshop. No, he rescued you. He adopted you, he renews you to himself, and he calls you his children. He is our father and he wants us to know him. Real Christianity is an intimate, loving relationship with Jesus. The more time you spend with him, the more you're going to love him. The more you love him, the more you're going to spend time with him and yield to his grace and goodness at work in your life. And the more you yield to him, the more he will change you. Your heart will change. Your love will grow. Your behavior will follow. After a decade of walking with Jesus, you will be a completely different person, all because of his grace. And you know what? It sneaks up on you, just like watching those videos from 10 years ago. 10 years snuck up on us, didn't it, honey? And now our daughter's almost 15 and she's about to get a permit. Pray for us. Pray for our insurance. <laughs> Love you, Caitlin. But it's amazing how that, it's amazing how she's changed and how she's grown. And so the Christian life sneaks up on us. But what we want to do is we want to come and measure our success against others because we're living for God. And God's like, my child, will you just live in, through, and from me? Will you walk with me? Will you love me? And then will you depend upon me? What is God's game plan for living out the victorious Christian life we have? Love him, walk with him, depend upon him. Depend upon him. It says in Romans 6, verses 11 through 13, catch these verses. Paul says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. That's where the battleground still is, your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You see, our body still has desires, and those desires aren't necessarily sinful. It's how our old flesh tries to get us to meet those desires. For instance, food. Food is a natural desire. I'm thankful to have it. But we know that that desire left unchecked outside of its boundaries can ruin us and others. The desire for sex, the desire for money, all those desires, those aren't necessarily bad things. We, we need those things in our life, but in the boundaries that God has given. And so God says here, don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body. But how? Because of reckoning this truth of the gospel. You see, the gospel says we're not only forgiven of all of our sin, we're made new people. There's a part of us that's dead, but there's a part of us that's brand new. That's the spirit, the new man, the inner man. And so he says, yield your members as instruments don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So depend upon Jesus. Yield by faith. Probably the illustration that I would choose here in this moment of what it means to depend and really wrap up everything we've been talking about, the difference between living for Jesus and living in, through, and from, what it means to depend is... I grew up here in Decatur, Alabama. I was born and raised here. And uh, many of you share a similar passion that my family did growing up, and that is getting out on the Tennessee River or Smith Lake and enjoying the water. Raise your hand if you like to go to the lake or you like to go to the Tennessee River. All right, we got some fishermen. We got some jet ski people we know. We got some tubers. We got... And so growing up, my dad had a boat um, for, for most of our growing up life. And we, it was a tradition. We would always go out every Saturday during the summer 
and go out on the Tennessee River and take trips up and down the river, swim to, I'm not sure if I'd swim right now with an alligator. I hear there's a gator in the Tennessee River. That ain't me. But anyway, we would do that. And so we loved boats. And you know what the Christian life is, is like? It's like a boat. But here's the question. What kind of boat? A lot of religion today says that the Christian life is like a rowboat where you got to row hard and it's important to row with other people so you get other people in your rowboat and y'all all row together and if you're not getting far enough you got to check your oar and make sure you got the right kind of oar to row with and and uh, you know work on your muscles and start to you know work on those rowing exercises and and so you got to learn how to row a little harder and a little faster and so you come to church to figure out how to row better and so a lot of the christian life gets presented as we're in a rowboat working hard trying to make progress what i've tried to present today is not a rowboat christian life but a sailboat christian life what's the difference is there still some work involved in being in a sailboat yeah really the only work involved in being in a sailboat is you by faith setting the sail and then trusting that the wind will take you further than your rowing ever could and I really do think that that illustrates these two verses Um, it really does illustrate those two verses working out so when God says work out your salvation you know what the work is the work of faith saying okay God I believe that it's in through and from you you're the vine I'm the branch so Teach me what it means to work, to set my sail by faith so that you can take me further than my own efforts ever could so that you get all the glory. Do you see the difference? So many Christians, and perhaps many of us in here, we've thought that the Christian life is like a rowboat. But really what the Christian life is like, it's a sailboat. Is there work involved? Sure. And so we're always watching that sail to make sure we're catching the wind. (laughs) To make sure that we're setting that sail because we know that God's grace, God's gospel, the truth is going to take us further than we could ever take us in our own strength. And so the work is simply setting the sail by faith and then allowing him to take you where you need to be. Let's pray together.